Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with David LaRocca, the editor of The Philosophy of War Films. The book was published in 2018 by the University Press of Kentucky. The book, part of the Philosophy of Popular Culture series, presents essays by prominent scholars that try to answer questions related to films featuring war. David and I talk about many of the essays, as well as how he drew together his authors and his own contributions to the book. Welcome, David LaRocca. Hi, David. How are you? I'm well. Thanks, Joel. I am glad to talk to you about your edited collection called The Philosophy of War Films. It is a topic that is of interest to me uh, in many ways, partly because Obviously, war films, as someone who is interested in film and in history, uh, war films are a particularly important part of that particular combination. So I'm looking forward to this discussion and for a variety of reasons. Me too. So let's start a little bit with your background. Um, as I say, even though it's a you didn't quote-unquote write the whole book, you edited the collection, you're obviously your fingers are and your mind is throughout the entire book so we want to get a little sense of you um your as much of your educational or other background that you'd like to uh share and then talk a little bit about uh other things that you've written because you're you've written quite a bit already and we'll get into it that way okay great yeah so again thanks for this chance to talk with you and uh your listeners um so as far as my training goes in, in the academy, um, I, I studied philosophy and religion as well as film, film theory and film history. And these worlds have come together in the form of uh, books that I've been editing now, this, now three books in total, uh, the war film books being the second of the three. The first was on Charlie Kaufman, who uh, listeners may know as the creator of Adaptation and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, being John Malkovich. And more recently, a book entitled The Philosophy of Documentary Film that uh, has the, the range of documentary works um, at issue. I also um, have worked in American studies and philosophy, and um, some of my um, teaching appointments have been at uh, Ithaca College, in the School of Communications and at Cortland in philosophy and most recently at Binghamton University in the cinema department. That's funny. I'm looking at uh, one of the blurbs that you had for that was for the series and it's by Guy Westwell. Uh, mm-hmm. I have actually interviewed him for a previous podcast, so um, you're in good company as far as the people I've oh, talked to. Uh, I'll, I'll have to take a look at the philosophy of documentary film because that is one of my interests is documentary film. So maybe we can talk about that book at some point as well. So um, I'd like that very much. Great. But anyway, uh, sounds good. Now, 
obviously, is, as we've already talked about, this is an edited collection. And what led you to decide, um, you know, this is part of a series that the University of Kentucky does called the, um, the Philosophy of Popular Culture series. So obviously all three of the books that you mentioned have start with the philosophy of, and obviously they must have others in the series. What led you to decide that this was a particular road you wanted to come down with, with this, and in particular with this book? Good. Well, let me say one thing about this series just to orient uh, listeners to this. So it's the, the series is called The Philosophy of Popular Culture, and it includes many, um, more than a dozen titles. And it's, it was at the University Press of Kentucky for a long time, and now it's recently moved to Lexington Books at Roman and Littlefield. So, for example, my latest um, documentary film is with them. As a result, you get a kind of uniformity of title. So all of the titles in the Kentucky series say the philosophy of, and typically um, these the titles have been about directors or, for example, Michael Mann, Tim Burton, the Coen brothers, Spike Lee, or they're about um, genres, um, uh, the philosophy of war films being one of the genre. The, <clears throat> the lone exception... Um, is the is the Charlie Kaufman book since he's he although he is a director he's mainly known as a screenwriter so that was an unusual and useful addition to the series. Um, as for the, the you know approaching the topic and the genre um, from my particular vantage why I I was eager to to work on this I have a background both practically and and theoretically in photography and over the years I have been especially attuned to war photography and photojournalism and the documentation of war through still photographs. And so everyone from uh, Matthew Brady and his studio in the Civil War through Robert Kappa in World War II and Vietnam's Philip Jones Griffiths to James Noctvay and Susan Mizellis and others, um, studying them partly prompted the question, um, what is the, the mediation between me as a viewer and the lived experience of the war like? What, what's happening between me and, as you, as you were alluding to, history, you know, the, the ongoing process of what's happening in the world? And this became quite pointed when I began thinking about a photograph by Jeff Wall. It's called Dead Troops Talk. And this is a hyper-realistic photograph um, depicting soldiers who are bleeding and injured, uh, some are dead, and yet they seem quite spirited. They're laughing, they're pointing, they, they uh, have mocking facial gestures. And it takes a little while, but not too long to realize that this is a fabrication, that this is in fact a staged photograph. And this got me to thinking about whether fiction or the fabrication of some scene of war might in fact prompt more thoughtful um, and even perhaps more genuine uh, notes on the realities of war. So for, in this particular case, the juxtaposition of comedy and tragedy, that sense that there's a kind of a astonishing absurdity to the way people, an, an astonishing absurdity to the way people are injured and die, that there's so much contingency and so much accident in war and that it's very hard to derive meaning from war um, 
hence the, the pursuit of things like vic the victory of battle or the victory of the war to give meaning to the deaths. So um, that, that sort of um, exploration was complemented by uh, a related investigation of this happening in documentary film. So uh, a couple of, of examples will suffice. Christian Fry's War Photographer from 2001 um, which is a portrait of the photographer James Nachtwey. Uh, if you put that beside Werner Herzog's works like Fata Morgana or Lessons of Darkness or his Little Dieter Needs to Fly and Rescue Dawn, what you find is um, a dialogue about the nature of fabrication and fakery or reenactment. And I wanted to pursue that um, further into the study of war films in particular, although all of this is informed by image making uh, photography through film. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> oh, don't worry. I'll edit around this. Um, so obviously then you've got a development, you know, you've pulled together um, a number of authors to discuss the issues related. So I'm assuming that your point was to try to, as you mentioned it, this is less, excuse me, this is less uh, war documentaries and more war and narrative film. Well, it's both. It's, at least that's the ambition. So in, in some ways, the title of the book, which, as I was saying, is part of a series, and so I didn't quite make it, but it, it it's a pretty grandiose thing to say, <laughs> right? That's the philosophy of war films. So... I try to take up the, as much of that expanse as possible to include feature fictions, which is to say the movies that we typically associate with war films, as well as documentaries, but also look at things like newsreels and even engage with the history of war photography because that is, that is sort of at the origin and also parallels a lot of war documentary work. So if you take just one quick example – um, say Ken Burns's recent Vietnam documentary multi-part series, mm -hmm. consider the extent to which that documentary film relies on still imagery. Right. And Burns is famous enough to have um, almost invented a certain approach to filming still photographs, the pan and the, um, the zoom in, the gentle zoom in or the gentle... Uh, withdrawal from the image so that it's it's a quite distinctive style but my point is only to say that when we're used to talking about war films in, in the documentary context they may rely quite heavily on still imagery right it's it's interesting with ken burns i mean obviously he had done documentaries historical documentaries before the civil war one but um that one is obviously the one that brought him into the limelight to the average person and um, that was one of the things they, that the reviewers, popular reviewers, would talk about is his use. Because obviously the Civil War documentary is consistently all about, it only has photos, uh, except for a little bit of footage at the beginning and the end. So uh, it is built just on photos. And uh, some of the newer ones, in fact, it's almost funny when you watch one of his and suddenly there's talking people, you know, it's documentary footage, you know, it's newsreels or whatever, news footage. And it's just strange. It seems like his depends almost on using uh, images only as opposed to also including uh, sound and, and video. That's right. And, and I, we wanted to give 
credence to that as a, a, a real part of what we what we mean when we say war films. Right. So how many I forgot I, I counted and then forgot uh, how many people did you pull together for this? Is for the listener, this is this is not a, thin, a this is not a slim volume. This thing's five hundred thirty eight pages long. So this gets really in depth, which is great because uh, I, I think it's a topic that definitely deserves this kind of attention. So um, I just wanted to mention that up front that this is a it's a hefty volume, so to speak. So that which is good. So you've got um, how yeah, many essays were there total? So there's there's 14 contributors plus myself right. would bring it to 15 chapters across four parts. And I also have um, what appears to be a lengthy <laughs> introduction. It comes out to 77 pages right. with, with footnotes. Um, and that's that's meant to give some orientation to the to the subject. And I might also point out, as far as editorial intervention, I have a um, an appendix that I, I call the multifarious forms of war films, and it's an attempt at a taxonomy of subgenres, because one of the things that was most surprising in doing the research for the book and also with working with the contributors is the way in which war films as a single type, if, if someone says what if you're trying to define it what is a war film as a type you find there's a lot of slippage between other subgenres so for example um, just taking a couple off of the the first page of the appendix i have a subgenre called childhood and coming of age during wartime and all of these films would you might say be considered bona fide war films but their their dominant dramatic arc tends to be about children um, and that's what they all have in common or to take another example war romance and melodrama this would be where you take the usual uh, recipes and genre classifications and patterns that you see in in say romance and you import them into a wartime context sometimes it's home front and other times it's on the front depending on which film you're in mm-hmm. Um, but this this is meant to show how rich war films as a genre is, and how um, many and how prevalent uh, this this is in our media culture and film culture. Um, yeah, I mean that's you, you can see that. I mean, in as you mentioned, as a you know for culture, you know, war war films. It's in, in, uh, have you ever looked at? Are there periods in film history where war films become more important, less important, or more made, I guess is the best way of putting it. Or there, it seems to me there are periods of time, and I'm mm. thinking, and I could be wrong, I'm just going by memory, that around the Vietnam War period, there were not a huge amount of war films being made during the period, and it took a while afterwards before they started up again. Yeah. You know, one of the things that... Um that that did I did notice that in trying to research the book, but also the the taxonomy, is uh, you might say there are more popular films to depict than others. Um, one one war that s- seemed to struggle to not only have representative examples, but also examples that would become indelible and influence other films, and that's the Korean War. So. Although I have a, a couple of dozen films listed, 
there really aren't a lot of names there, a lot of um, titles that would strike one as indelible in the, in the same way that, say, um, many dozens of World War II films or Vietnam War films would, would, would qualify. Um, I think a second answer to the same question, though, would be how surprisingly durable the war film genre is. And if it does ebb and flow based on cultural and economic and political factors, it is, it is surprising how robust it is um, as, a, as a genre. Um, and partly because of its capacity to become hybridized. So you'll see some trends where um, a war story wants to be told, but it needs to hide a bit. So it might go into a realm of science fiction and allegory. Mm-hmm. Other times... Um, to be more politically or ethically charged, it might become quite graphic and so-called realist in its depiction of war. Um, so I, I think that part of the answer to this question is we, we sort of want to be interested in why war films have been around so long and why they continue to proliferate. Yeah, I, I think one sort of thinking about this whole concept of periods of war films, um, I've noticed that uh, the current wars, I guess I'm going to put it that way, there doesn't seem to be a fear to make movies about it as it's going on, mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as opposed to, like I say, people, you know, the, only, the only Vietnam War film I can think of that was actually made at the time of the Vietnam War, and I, and I, it, it just went out of my mind there for a minute, um, but we we seem to see plenty of war films now that you know they don't seem to have any problems making about a a, a war that's currently still going on or was going on in in more uh strength at the time so many films and in fact there's a couple in in the book that you talk about or that that your c- contributors talk about as far as Iraq war films and and things like that Yes, that's true. Um, maybe it's because our wars are lasting so long that uh, we have to take stock at some point. But it, it's a very good observation. I mean, even even as a little clue to, to your point about Vietnam, um, in, the, uh, in the taxonomy, you see that the only film I have listed as, as made during the Vietnam War, technically, in terms of time period, is the Green Berets. Right. That's what it was. I was going to say, yeah. and I said, I don't want to make, I don't want to make a mistake there. Yeah. So, you know, and you also think about that's uh, a John Wayne film. Right. And he, he is in many, and your listeners will be familiar. I mean, he's a carryover in a way from both um, established heroic war films of World War II but also he's he's a he's being translated in from westerns and there's a a way in which this is a kind of quintessential contemporaneous way of approaching a a politically charged um war whereas if you look further in the list to films that are made after the war ends um i i have listed here taxi driver martin scorsese's 1976 but also coming home the Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now, right. uh, and then into the 80s with the First Blood, Rambo series, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, and so on. Um, the the, t- the stock taking um, takes on a very different shape um, in, in, in the post-war period, post-Vietnam period. Yeah, I, I, 
I was I'm older probably than you, and I do remember when Coming Home came out, and the reviewers, one of the things Coming Home, th there was a lot of discussion about it being one of the first films to talk about, you know, to to actually, uh, you know, look at the Vietnam War, and it became not that unusual. In fact, now it's become almost a norm that we see people, we see movies that deal with aftermath. And, mm -hmm. and what happened to the people where during this certain period of time, there's, you know, certain war films that, uh, you know, they weren't meant to do that and they they weren't played that way. But uh, so I can see, I do remember a lot of discussion about that at the time uh, Coming Home came out. And as far as yep. the Green Berets, I'm pretty sure that was uh, John Wayne's own pet project during the war when things weren't, uh, when mm -hmm. support wasn't very high. And I think, uh, my memory serves as far as the Green Beret, and if you've ever seen it, it's it's basically almost a World War II film mm. uh, and a Western almost, but you know, as far as but being done in Vietnam, so it's it's yeah. a strange film. Yeah, and and your point about the what we might call the the coming home or the home front film um, gets quite a bit of attention in this book, partly because it is it is something that's gotten more attention since that very um, indelible uh, film coming home. Um, I did a, uh, a, a series of films, a kind of film clinic at the Brooklyn historical society a couple of years back where we, we watched films in this subgenre, um, a film called return, uh, Werner Herzog's little Dieter needs to fly or in Moverman's the messenger, and another one I might mention that we didn't screen, but is relevant, is um, Taking Chance. So in, in these films, um, uh, you know, if you take just especially uh, the, the Messenger and, and Taking Chance, you, you never see any combat. Mm -hmm. So these are, these are like you say, the, dealing with the aftermath. And this, is, um, this might be considered a, an innovation in our ability to deal with the emotional landscape of war, that it's not just something that happens on the battlefield and then is contained, but in fact, uh, comes home. Right. And it has, it has become a more, uh, normal subgenre where it's not unusual to see war related films that deal with aftermath or deal with the home front it, 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 as opposed to just being battle movies, so to right. speak. <clears throat> right. So let's talk a little bit more about the process that you went through to pull the material together. And as you say, you've got the, you do have a very long and interesting introduction, and then of course you end up doing the last essay, although it's part of the part, so you do get to sort of start and end the mm -hmm. whole thing. Uh, but what did you do? As and, and I mentioned this to you before we started uh, recording that I always like interviewing editors of of collections because I think it's an interesting process that, you know, it doesn't really occur in popular uh, nonfiction or, or, or works where you get this kind of concept regularly. But I still think it's a it's an interesting way to learn about a topic because you get so many different points of view. How did you pull yep. together this this large group of people to to develop uh, essays on this topic? Well, I might just emphasize your point about pulling together these different points of view that's one of my great pleasures in having the opportunity to edit volumes like this is to shift away from trying to offer the reader, let's say, 500 pages of my own opinion 
on on various films, but instead reach out to people who've thought long and hard about uh, a great number of war films and, and other subjects and invite them to present their opinions and their, their latest thoughts. Um, in this way, I think of editing volumes like trying to assemble a wonderful dinner party. The idea is that you, you think about who will sit next to whom at the table and what they might talk about and what kinds of questions you might prompt um, to, to get the conversation going. So I, I think that this is one of the great virtues of, of edited collections, that you have all of these points of view. Now, as far as the nuts and bolts of um, trying to, um, to gather these folks, I'll say that I was inspired by, the writing, by writing by many of them um, as I was doing my own research. So almost everyone in the book has written uh, articles or full books about war films. And I was uh, simply writing as a, as a fan in many cases to say that um, I had gotten something significant from their writing and would they, would they consider writing something new for this new collection? So I was, I was uh, gratified. You can imagine that I had such a wonderful response from some, so many able critics and theorists. Um, and as, as the material came together um, and conversations developed, the, the content of the book took, took shape. So the way that it's divided into four parts, um, we, can, we can walk through that. But it, essentially, these are going to be parts that are familiar to the categories of philosophy. Um, say part one about aesthetics. So this is about... Um, and I'll just go into detail on just this one part. Mm -hmm. This is about the way in which a viewer is related to the content on screen and not just as uh, you might say the content of what is it about? So is it about World War II or Vietnam, but also how is the, the viewer related to film as a medium or cinema as a sonic landscape? That is a, a, a space where sounds are happening. Um, how does this change, if at all, when we move from film to digital or when we move from uh, films that are made on sets to films that are made in the field or, for that matter, films that are made in a kind of uh, computer-generated space? So those are aesthetic questions. Um, and then they, they trickle and um, uh, shift into the, the questions that, that, that happen in parts two, three, and four. So talk more about that right in fact um we were just talking about this and in fact one of the ones that uh, you know you're talking about uh of uh how things come out and how um um visuals and that part of it the one that that, that struck me of the first part especially was the lenses into war digital verite and iraq war films mm -hmm. uh, uh, only mentioning that one because it was one that I particular. It was one of the first because I didn't read the book straight through it at at first. Mm -hmm. I sort of went to the particular essays that seemed interesting to me at first, and and so I think it was a great example that particular one by Stacy People Peebles um, mm -hmm. that talked about this current uh, thing as far as films is concerned. You know, in this case, the Iraq War, but. Right. Uh, she, she what I liked about it so much is that she brings examples of other films so that it makes it easier to films that aren't necessarily even in the war genre to show how 
when she makes her points that to, to to make it easier to understand what she's trying to to say as far as um, this this whole idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, hers is a, is a wonderful example of um, a work by someone who's familiar, deeply familiar with literature. She's also um, a wonderful Cormac McCarthy scholar as well. Mm-hmm. Um, her familiarity with other modes or other mediums, you know, literature and film, as well as her attunement to uh, the, the ways in which Iraq war films in particular have introduced filmmaking into the narrative. So you have now soldiers who are depicted in um, Iraq war films making films of themselves, mm-hmm. um, bringing portable cameras with them, and also um, a, a kind of auxiliary space uh we might call it uh, Skype video or FaceTime video, the way in which soldiers are communicating back to the home front through through live video feeds. This also breaks down that divide between war front and home front and uh, in effect brings the soldier home and brings the, the domestic space into the, the very immediate um, war front. And it's this first part, like you say, the aesthetics, um, you actually have two essays that deal with the concepts of surveillance. Mm-hmm. And and so I think, uh, you know, that first part does a good job. And like I say, in most of these these first essays, they're they're about various films. There's only one of the first essay, part one essays that's about a particular film, in this mm-hmm. case, Charlie Chaplin's Shoulder Arms. But. Uh, the nice thing is, is that the way things are brought together is that uh, there's a very good representation, of, to use a word, of of how these films fit into the entire, you know, into films as a whole, not just the war aspect of it, but also their 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 place in the in the film mm-hmm. uh, industry, or not industry so much as film collection. Yeah, and and absolutely, and another way to approach it too is to see that. In part one, especially, you have the interaction between technology and culture and story. Mm-hmm. So these these are three among other um, elements that come to play. But as technologies change, the very ways in which we tell stories begins to change. So surveillance is not just a thing that's happening to soldiers, but it also becomes a thing that they do to one another. They are surveilling themselves. They're they're filming themselves, and this this takes on um, dramatic effect in in feature films as well as in documentaries. Uh, you'll you'll find this this a recurring pattern, um, and it's a, it's a function of technology. Yeah, because one of the things they said about the you know one of the major points that's always been made about the Vietnam War is that it was the first televised war because mm-hmm. it was the first war that the United States was involved in that happened after television became popular, even though Korea television was around at that point, making, you know, trying to film and, and get that material available to, to be used on television was very difficult whereby Vietnam, you know, reporters were regularly in there with cameras and, and things. And now, as you point out, uh, you know, ever since the first Gulf War, where suddenly video has just become a, a normal part of, of warfare and, and being people being able to see this material. And I think it, it does add to the overall philosophy of, uh, you know, of war. And it can, if you can see it, does that change your view of war? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and what do you mean by see it and hear it? Right. Do you, do you mean unmediated, or if that's such a thing were possible? Um, in other words, all the things we're talking about in this book are mediations, whether they're live or they're very very high resolution or very grainy. Um, is a matter for debate, but essentially all of these are forms of mediation. And in fact, let's skip ahead real quickly because this one comes right into this. In part three, The Ethical Tribulations of War, one of the essays, The Work of Art in the Age of Embedded Journalism, Fiction versus Depiction in Zero Dark Thirty by K.L. Evans. Uh, That, I think, is pretty much what we're talking about, the idea that, you know, well, not in this case, it's still journalists, but that what does that mean and how does how does your view of material or how should it be affected by how it was created i mean the fact that a journalist is embedded and this as this has even been a you know controversial topic within the journalism profession of of embedded journalism and um i think that particular essay because and it tells right from the title fiction versus depiction um, you know, and in this case, Zero Dark Thirty, which is not the only essay in this book about Zero Dark Thirty, which I find interesting as far as uh, what it says about that film. Yeah, it's a very controversial film. And um, and for that reason, we felt like it should have a little more space also to keep the book contemporary and to, you know, although we begin with um, – early films, like you mentioned, Charlie Chaplin's Shoulder Arms from 1918, uh, and here we are in 2018, we are also contending with these contemporary um, innovations, or you might say corruptions of journalism. And K.L. Evans's chapter is, is astonishing for highlighting precisely these very difficult questions that we ask when it comes to the relationship between truth and fabrication or uh, fact and fiction. Um, many, many people in the military, from what I've read and, and heard, have been they're, they're quite distraught about the way in which Zero Dark Thirty portrays the intelligence world. Um, one among many examples of, of a problem would be the, the ways in which Maya, played by Jessica Chastain, appears to essentially solved the problem by herself, mm-hmm. even though she's living within a world of intelligence officers and is benefiting from their, their input and insight. Um, this would, would in a way show zero dark 30 to be more of a mythological story about how, um, one wants to be a heroic, um, discerner of truths, you know, one person alone among a mass of humanity, but in fact, this this is not how intelligence gathering works, and the film appears to fail fail its uh, its audience, including military people as well as the general audience on this. Um, it is, uh, it, and it's also a question about the relationship between journalism and storytelling. So Mark Bull is the screenwriter, and he's also the author of The Hurt Locker, which is also very strongly contested among military historians and and uh, theorists of film is being problematical for its depictions. So, yeah. Plus, and the other issue, and it's one more layer, is Zero Dark Thirty and its, uh, you know, its development with aid by, you know, with help from, how much help did they get as far as the film was concerned by 
people within the government or within the military that might have had their own um, ideas they wanted to make sure were included. Yeah. Yeah. There's, in fact, there's um, at least one book that I know of, and there's probably more that talk about Hollywood's relationship with the military right. and how this has been a long standing collaboration, everything from the, um, the U S military loaning um, aircraft carriers for the filming of top gun and, and on down the line in terms of access and ability to use facilities to, to depict on the ground forces or facilities. So it's, it it becomes a question of whether one can um, speak truth or, or show truth if it's unflattering or if it is more complicated than one wants it to be. Uh, The fact is that as a narrative, uh, zero dark 30 is compelling and it's, and it's, it's, it is entertaining, but whether this is going to accord with history or fact um, or truth for that matter um, is, is highly problematical. Yeah. I think the whole issue of, of, and we're going to say at Hollywood because the, the, it isn't obviously a Hollywood film, the need for a, a hero in a Hollywood film. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you put that against, you know, reality or, or nonfiction, I'm, use nonfiction as opposed to reality because what's reality um, tends to run into that because of the need for a hero isn't going to always be um, work with a, a, a true a story that might have involved or definitely involved multiple people. And there have been many examples of that where I've seen uh, discussion and not necessarily military, but other films where the whole idea is, is that they're, they're supposedly non based on a true story, but the person comes out being superhuman and mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's not always, that's not regularly the case of what happens. Yeah. And to contrast that with say the approach that Terrence Malick takes in the thin red line, which also has two essays um, right. dedicated to it in part four, this is another, an entirely different approach um, that uses hi- historical events and this, case the battle of guadalcanal as a as a um as a context in which to explore you might say the poetic or the existential or the metaphysical quality of war so part of malik's style is often a, a a contrast or you might say um a coupling of the human with the natural almost to say doesn't it seem like the human is not quite part of nature and that the thing in this particular case, in the thin red line, the thing that humans do is they make war. And yet, if you look to nature, you can also see war. You can see contest and struggle. And um, this this is a this is partly why these these chapters are ordered this way. Is that you, if you are reading consecutively, you're thinking about the debate between fiction and depiction, and then you come to someone like Malik, who takes this approach that is. Let's call it poetic. I didn't want to also, I wanted to, there, another essay I wanted to make sure I mentioned because I think, it, you know, because so far we've talked about films that tend to be reasonably well-known, popular, not pop, you know, 
that the average person might have seen on a regular, you know, might see on a regular basis. But there's one chapter in part three that I found particularly interesting because it goes outside the bubble of most of, of many of the films that are in. And that's the ubiquitous absence of the enemy in contemporary Israeli war films. That's a completely, I mean, that's sort of, in one way, it certainly is important with the overall topic, but I, one of the things I liked about it was that it sort of went out of, outside the box a little bit of yeah. many of the other essays, which and, and it gave us a little bit of a view of how another country um, mm -hmm. might be dealing with, with a particular, you know, with war. And I'll let you pronounce the author's name because I don't want to mess it up. <laughs> yeah, um, Holger Petsch. Uh, is is the author and yes i think with holger's piece and also with inger brody's piece on right. westerns and samurai films both of those chapters are really um organized and inspired by the idea to do just what you said which is to take us out of an american um western predominantly western context of war and to think through are there important differences or frankly similarities between the ways that, um, that war films are uh, constituted in other cultures and, um, Holger Petsch's, um, reading, he's, he's gathering, um, three films, Beaufort, Waltz with Bashir and Lebanon for critical analysis. And, um, you know, what he finds is that there is, um, a, a, a continual, erasure or with withholding of the presence of the enemy so the idea that um we're not we're not allowed to identify with the enemy to see the war from the enemy's point of view and instead um we are we are meant to identify most strongly if, since that's our only choice with um with the israeli military so it's a it's a very um potentially con uh, controversial thesis because it seems to suggest a certain consistency of approach from one filmmaker to another, from one generation to another, that would suggest a certain, you might say, Israeli approach to making um, war films. But I also think, I, well, one of the things it says it just happens to be Israeli in this case is that uh, war films have a political bent to them. It's almost a given because wars are in the end, I mean, well, I don't know if you want to call them political actions, but they certainly are generally, most of the time when we talk wars, these are things that are done by, uh, you know, countries and, and people in charge, so to speak. And so uh, it is interesting to see the uh, the view of, of another country and, and, and how they look at uh, war films. Yeah, and that's a, that's a very important philosophical point, especially as it comes to the relationship of film, whether it's a documentary or a, a fiction, to the political and ethical climate of of the time. So, for example, let's just radically change our context for a, a second and say you want to make a romantic comedy. If you're making this film, you're probably going to be commenting on or engaging with mores that have to do with marriage and sex and children and um, career, you know, the usual things um, that they're featured in a romantic comedy, maybe in-laws, parents and siblings and so on. The point is that there, there, while there is grave ethical content there, um, 
that romantic comedies are almost always um, polished in such a way, especially Hollywood ones, polished in such a way that their political um, effect is muted. So if you want to find the political effect, you you often need strong readers to go in and point those those things out. So like you know, someone like Slavoj Žižek is very good at looking at what seems like a pure entertainment and drawing out of it some sort of deep moral or political catastrophe. Um, but to, to the reason I bring up this contrast is that if you say to yourself, okay, I want to make a film about the hunt for Osama bin Laden or a film about Vietnam, then you are instantly uh, placing yourself in the midst of a huge political and ethical morass. You're saying, I'm going to have an opinion about a historical event of which I may be, if not partially, then quite, I mean, perhaps significantly ignorant of. Um, wars are notoriously classified events, and you may have to speculate on things that you'll have no hope of ever knowing about. So in, a, in, a, in an odd way, um, war films are um, right from the beginning a deeply um, fabricated event. They're, they have to imagine and create worlds where there, there may be no evidence or um, compelling reason to, to substantiate. Um, I know it's, it's gotten to a point now where I, it takes a little while. You don't get it like, but it's, it's not unusual to see war film, oh, a film that takes place during a war where, after a while, you have to just assume that most of the things that are happening in the film probably didn't really happen. If, mm -hmm. if, they, if they happen, they certainly didn't happen the way they're being depicted because there the story becomes more important and the war just happens to be the backdrop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in your, and I'm not, I'm not, this one I want to sort of step out a little bit from the book, although I, it's probable, you know, in a, you know, that, that it gets dealt with in some ways. Um, it, the idea of war films the romanticizing of war because of films is a topic that I that I it's one of the things I've struggled with in my thoughts of of war is that there tends to be a romanticism especially after the war is yeah. the farther away you get from the war that it becomes romanticized yeah. um, do we see are we seeing have we seen examples of this particular and and is it going is it continuing, so to speak? Are we still seeing films where war becomes this, um, you know, this whole idea of being, you know, you're, 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 it builds your character or your life is better because of it and things like that, even though we obviously hear enough stories that tell us it's not necessarily true. Yeah. Well, uh, let me return again to reply to that, to um, – romantic comedies because they have the word romance in them and when when we say romantic comedy we're we we probably don't know this but we want the film to romanticize romance in other words to make it seem like something that ends in a marriage mm -hmm. that's the short formula for that and as one um, example of this you know charlie kaufman uh, the screenwriter and director said that romantic comedies messed him up romantically because in the world, his real world, his, his lived experience, they, it, it didn't align with what he saw in romantic comedies. So that's why in, in large measure, why Kaufman writes 
about romance the way he does. It's troubled, it's vexing, it's painful, and so on. Now, the reason I bring that up is to substantiate your point about the romance of war, that just like with Zero Dark Thirty, there's this tendency to find a romantic figure, a heroic figure, often who is imputed with qualities like purity and goodness and access to truth, often solitude, so the single person against the mass and so on. So there are these these character traits, as you you know, as you were alluding to, that we are drawn to. And whether or not these are justifiable based on the historical record is sort of secondary, because what we find is that war films do want to present this this burnished picture um, and and present us with the, the option of deciding if someone is heroic or not. Uh, and then the question is uh, relates to something that we talk about in the book quite a bit is, you know, what are war films for? Um, why are we making them? And, and one answer would be for precisely the reasons you're, you're saying, because we get a lot of pleasure, um, although this is maybe perverse, right? I mean, you can understand getting pleasure from a comedy, but why would we get pleasure from watching graphic depictions of war? This at the same time seems to be the pleasure, pleasure in having pathos activated in us, a kind of moral intensity that allows us to feel really strongly about people who are in grave circumstances. And speaking of which, this is just, you know, like I say, we've talked about a number of the essays, but there's one other one that sort of relates to what we've just talked about. It's in part three, The Ethical Tribulations of War, and that's the one General Patton and Private Ryan, The Conflicting Reality of War in Films About War by Andrew Fiala. Um, it literally is this topic of, uh, you know, one of the issues with Patton when the, when the film came out was the, the, the glorification uh, of war. And, and and it's in and it definitely was controversial at the time, as far as that part of it is concerned. And then you, you in this in his essay he then um, uh, contrasts it and compares it with Saving Private Ryan, where it's a it's a fictional story, but does it create a more real picture of what war is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I think that we're perhaps always thrown back on the question um, about our motivations for making war or for what for making war films or for watching them is uh, are all war films inherently anti-war and this is part of the paradox that you think well we wouldn't would we <laughs> we wouldn't make war films to promote war to in other way in other words say here is a, a heroic context that an individual has we've created this myth of this individual fighting for that reason we'd like to fight more wars so is, is it the case that there's this inherent hope that each war film is in fact an anti-war film it says here's this horrible tragic thing that we did or that we're saying we did and we should not do that again on the other hand there may be people who think of some war films whether it's um, Patton or American Sniper more recently as being just out and out um, advertisements for a certain kind of uh, war mentality. 
Yeah, I can think of one off the top of my head because it, you know it's it's not one that's discussed in the in the book, but in any detail. But Paths of Glory is the perfect example I can think of where, uh, and it's one of those films that for a long time the average person it was almost impossible to see because it it didn't come out in video right away, and and yet now when you can view it, I mean it's 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 clearly anti-war, and yet um, it was made in a period of time where you would have thought those kind of films would likely not get much interest. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, Frederick Jameson mentions uh, Kubrick's film and brings it into uh, the in an interesting context of the, the writing of war, the literature of war, and how uh, Kubrick is part of this tradition <clears throat> of imagining what the conditions for war are, because essentially war filmmaking is the invention of a world. Uh, uh, very much like literature, and and like I say that that it's funny that you know that is that is a definite uh, like I said that's the one example I can think of because I there was, for the longest time as I say I wanted to see it and I finally got a chance and I said it was it was it was the film that I was it was advertised I, to this you know I still watch it occasionally and you just can't get over mm -hmm. how well uh, mm -hmm. it depicts everything related in this particular case to to a war uh in this case war mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and that that would be a great example in in some ways com contrasted with zero dark 30 mm -hmm. so paths of glory as allowing itself to be a, a a thoroughgoing work of fiction without trying to break the bonds of that and celebrating it cinematically and through acting and dialogue um, whereas Zero Dark Thirty, on the other hand, resists the the notion of artifice. So there's almost an aspiration to the documentary. Right. There's this notion that you're what you're seeing, quote unquote, really happened, and that's a that's a very um, surprising demand that a feature fiction makes. In other words, without calling attention to itself, uh, without it being a kind of meta comment on itself uh, zero dark 30 seems to quite seriously take up the notion that it can present you with the way things on the ground really happened mm -hmm. even though i think paths of you know for obvious reasons paths of glory does it does such a great job of proving of showing how something could happen you know mm -hmm. it's it's so well written and developed that uh you know how it happened seems almost uh fatalistic you knew it you know it had to come to this and it's, and yeah. it's, as opposed to something else where you sometimes feel like it's just being you know it's somebody put the pieces together to make a, a jigsaw puzzle but does it really represent the overall view of the, of the original image very much so and i think too invoking kubrick in this particular case um you're reminded of that those initial questions that I was saying came up for me with war photography, which is the ways in which fiction is revelatory of truth. And that is always a surprising thing. So I think that um, the way in which Paths of Glory affected you and continues to affect you speaks not to the power of history, but to the power of art. Mm -hmm. Well, as I say, I suspect this is a topic that and this book just does. I, I I really enjoy these essays because I felt like 
they looked at so many different ways of 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 reviewing the concepts of war films and and as you say the philosophy of uh that uh we could probably go on and on discussing not only these specific essays but also similar <laughs> topics but before i uh before we we sign off i just wanted to ask in you know, you've mentioned your three books, including the one that was done after this one on documentary, but are you, are you have other things in development or other things you're working on as far as future writing? Yes. I'm, I'm at present working on two volumes on the film work of Stanley Cabell. And these will, uh, hopefully be appearing in the, in the coming year or so. That sounds good. Well, as I say, uh, this is one of those topics where I could find myself talking for a long, long time. But like I also mentioned, it's always a good idea to to give enough information so that people see, okay, this is a book I definitely want to check out or learn more about and and leave it with that rather than going on and on for hours in which they say, okay, I've heard enough, <laughs> so to speak. Sure enough. Sure enough. So I, I, I really want to thank you for taking the time. And as I said before, this book is, it's, it's just a, 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 a unbelievable amount of interesting information and thought process that I think, uh, is, is worth, definitely worth reaching out and, and learning and reading and, and hopefully, uh, people will do so. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you, Joel. It means so much. And I'm sure that, uh, the contributors would feel as I do deeply gratified that you, um, you got so much from the book and I hope your listeners will, uh, will as well. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for making the time and for engaging me on such interesting material. I'm really great. Bye-bye. Bye, Joel. My great thanks to David. I think you will find the essays thought-provoking and educational. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.